Welcome to another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast, and we are continuing our series on type, and today we have a type three on someone who is uh, it's a great friend of mine and a co-host of the other podcast that I do, um, the the my more favorite podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I'm already, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've stepped into word. something. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, I knew I knew the joke was going to come up eventually, so I just decided to uh, preempt it. <laughs> preempt it. Yes, uh, we have Drew Mosier on. Doctor Drew Mosier. Drew, how's it going? Uh, it's going well, although I'm a little nervous now. That no, oh dear. When the well, kids fight, you... it's hard on mom and dad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or the other way around, maybe. When the parents uh, fight. It's hard on these kids, yeah. Drew, you're a professor, you're an author, you're a, a wrangler of children. <laughs> Where? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Can you kind of open up those packages and explain oh boy. that to yeah. people? Uh, I am those things. So I, I do uh, teach at a small you know, private university here in Indiana. So therefore, I live in Indiana alongside... Well, a few hours south of View Creek, and then mm-hmm. we, yeah, my wife and I, we live uh, here in a in small town, Indiana, uh, with our five kids. So we five kids, a dog, a cat. We were talking about pets earlier, <laughs> and. <laughs> Drew likes so, to yeah. add complexity to his life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Bring it on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, I do write about the Enneagram talk about it with you on Fathoms um, and and uh, yeah, spend a lot of time with that. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of fun too. Uh, Drew, tell us a little bit about your book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the book's called Enneagram and Discernment. And so what I uh, do in the book is try to look at how uh, type uh, and just the whole system of the Enneagram helps us better understand uh, a process of discernment. You know, how do we make good and wise decisions? And so yeah, so that's what that's what the book is about. It's it's been out. Let's see, has it been three years now? You know, it wow, happened in COVID really? time, which feels like another dimension. So, yeah, I think it's been about three years ago that it came out. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. it's a good book. So I, I recommend it for listeners who have not read it yet. It's, it's yeah, a thank you. Read. You will not hear Mario say that often. I, well, I know. <laughs> I'll take it. I receive it, and I'm very grateful yeah. for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a discriminating palate when it comes to Enneagram <laughs> books. Let's put it that way. Yes. And more should. Let's be yeah. honest, right? Yes. <laughs> um, when, when people when people tell me I I'm like a. Um, Snob, yes. elitist, yes. bougie. <laughs> yes. When people call me a snob on like coffee or food, right? I just say, no, I'm an enthusiast. You're an enthusiast. I'm, an, I'm a coffee enthusiast. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Unfortunately, um, in the Enneagram community, most quote unquote enthusiasts are not very discriminating though. That's true. <laughs> in my experience, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. I, I'm feeling we could go a whole different direction with this, uh, this podcast well, here on, on the merits yes. of, uh, but, but, but let's not for now. So we'll save that for another talk. Yeah. Mario, why don't you take us into the type three and yeah. um, then we can hear some things from Drew. Uh, so Enneagram type three, we call striving to feel outstanding. Um, 
it's a personality style rooted in this need to feel like they're uh, standing out in some way. Now, it's important to understand, again, how the instinctual biases will shape the expression of this, you know, what it means to be outstanding, right? Uh, a preserving three, like Drew is. And finally, we got somebody who's not a navigator on the podcast. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a landmark. You're welcome. Itself, right? yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so a preserving three will look very different from a transmitting three, right? The transmitting three and the navigating threes are usually what people think of when they think of threes, right? More uh, image conscious, whereas the preserving three is striving to feel outstanding in getting their preserving needs met, right? So these mm -hmm. are the classic workaholics of the Enneagram, right? Much more focused, much more task-oriented than the navigating or transmitting threes are. So it's a very different character. Um, you know, as you can see now, our listeners, of course, can't see Drew, but uh, we can. And you can tell he's not as focused on his appearance as some of the other threes would be. <laughs> But Drew is a handsome fit guy, so I'll just take jabs at him because I'm jealous. So, um, but um, so you know, in addition to this striving to feel outstanding, there is this um, uh, desire to achieve things, right? So, there's this issue right. around value that they have, you know, and trying to understand what their value is and what is valuable in the world. Um, they have a particular relationship with the connecting points. Now, do we get into the connecting points here or do we save those? I think we save those, right? So, all right. So, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But again, threes are driven. They're, um, you know, they're success-oriented, even though success will be different for each three or what it means to be successful will be different for each three. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just trying to achieve things. Now, I do think that the three is one of the most misunderstood Enneagram types. Um, I, I remember one time an Enneagram teacher in South America saying to me that she didn't feel that threes had souls um, and, um, you know, and asked my oh. opinion on that. And I, I said, well, I, you know, I think they have just as much soul as anybody else. Uh, I'm clutching um, my pearls right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Uh, you know, and I always think of that episode of The Simpsons where Bart sold his soul to Millhouse for $5 and then he went to the quickie mart and the automatic door wouldn't open anymore, you know, and that sort of thing. Right. I, you know, the, the automatic doors seem to work for most of the threes that I've met. So, wow. uh, but even more relevant here is that people often feel that threes don't have emotions or that they're not caring, that they're not, you know, loving. And people tend to think that they're all phonies or fakes or deceptive or liars or something like that, which is uh, just not my experience of threes and it's a misunderstanding of the concept of deceit or vanity which are at the heart of the three okay because what that really refers to is a an identification with mm -hmm. you know the sense of self which we all suffer from but threes suffer a little bit more drew you've done a fair bit of teaching the enneagram and obviously you had to know it on some level to write a book 
Well, I guess not. <laughs> I, I'd like to think I chose to know it at a certain level before I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. Some people uh, thank you very much. learn the yeah. Enneagram before they yeah. write a book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> admirable. So how, how have you in the past and, and maybe comparatively to now, what's some new language that you've adopted for describing the three? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. And early on, kind of in my Enneagram journey, the language was, it was helpful, but it was simple in that, you know, threes want to achieve, they want to be successful, and they want to look good while doing it, right? And that's not untrue, but I, I think what you alluded to, Mario, in your description is that, you know, underneath that surface is there's so much more going on than maybe initially meets the eye with the type three. And so that's been an important kind of growth journey for me as a three, trying to figure out what is it that makes me kind of do the things that I do and think the way that I think and continue to put myself in the environments that I put myself in. And, and a lot of it is, yeah, that kind of striving to understand the value proposition that is me, right? I think that's at the core of... Um, the type three is there's they're always calibrating the value proposition of their lives, right? And when when threes get into trouble, that's when you start to see the stereotypes of the threes that we all know about, right? Pure image, don't care about others, only out for their own kind of selfish gain. It's because they've calibrated the value proposition in those terms, right? And and are still, <laughs> they look happy and successful, maybe on the outside, but are miserable on the inside. I think that's, and that's what, what often leads to these kind of catastrophic downfalls that we see some of these threes uh, in, you know, celebrity or political culture kind of collapse, right? It's because it just, it's a, it becomes a house of cards that kind of falls in on itself, right? And because you're right, there, there's so much beneath the surface going on that threes are trying to uh, mitigate and figure out in, in their own lives. And it often just manifests itself as, okay, the, the best way I know to figure out this now is I'm going to go do something, you know, that's successful, or I'm going to go do something that people will be impressed by. I'm going to go do something. And in order to assuage whatever is kind of going on internally. So it's not that we don't have this internal world. It's that we often don't know how to reconcile it well, other than going and just killing it out in the world, right? Again, I, th I think it's important to draw this distinction, as Drew did, between a healthy three or an adaptive three and somebody who's not, right? And yeah. you know, we talk about how when under stress, the three puts more emphasis on appearance than they do on substance, okay? The healthier three puts the emphasis on substance. So I really do want to add value. I really do want to make the world a better place. And not only that, but I hear threes all the time talking about making other people's lives better, right? So they have yeah. this reputation in the Enneagram world of being self-centered and selfish, but healthy threes, you know, are really, really trying to make the world better for everybody. And that, for me, is one of the things that I find so interesting about them, is that that desire to do for others, to be of service in some way, right? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. Healthy threes, that when they use all of those skills and abilities that you mentioned in healthy ways, it 
how could it not right lead to the improvement of those kind of in their spheres of life and influence? Absolutely. Yeah. So Drew, tell us um, how you knew about the Enneagram. When did you learn about the Enneagram and how did you realize that you were a type three? Yeah, uh, that was a, a fascinating experience. I, you know, I was, uh, we were living in Vancouver, British Columbia at the time working for a nonprofit and part of the, you know, nonprofits have these kind of forced family fun retreats or staff development times. And so we were on one of those and were informed that we were going to take this personality test called the Enneagram, which I had heard of, but wouldn't be able to, you know, tell you what it was at the time. And so I kind of, you know, internally, I hope at least internally, kind of rolled my eyes and, <laughs> oh, great, here we go. You know, another waste of a day as, as a three, you know, didn't know, I didn't have the language of it at the time. I thought there are better things we can be doing. We can be more productive than spending the time. I could be building a fence today. Yeah, navel gazing, mm. right? <laughs> mm. And uh, talk, you know, putting these simplistic labels on one another. But, you know, we took the ready assessment and then had, they had a facilitator who I think had been trained at least in some way or fashion in the Rizzo-Hudson kind of tradition, right, Enneagram Institute, and who talked us through our results. And I took the test, and I know this isn't everyone's experience, but the test did accurately depict me as a, a type three. And as I'm hearing this facilitator talk about the type three, I I had this sense that I was getting language, you know, even though now it seems somewhat simplistic, but I was getting language about myself that I couldn't put words to before. You probably heard others talk about someone's been following them around or <laughs> or reading their mail, right? That and I had that experience. So I was kind of blown away and thought, okay, this this is different, right? I found other personality assessments helpful to a degree, but this feels like a different level, a deeper level of understanding of who I am. And so that was back in, I want to say two, 2008, probably. And so I've uh, been kind of hooked on it ever since, you know, as, as this uh, really helpful tool or resource um, in my work. Because, uh, you know, my work is predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly with uh, young adults and helping them kind of navigate the questions that all young adults ask, which, you know, these questions of who am I and what's my purpose and where am I going with my life? And I convinced those questions don't have kind of good answers, or at least you can't have a good exploration of those questions if you don't have a sense of your personality, right? And because uh, if you don't have that understanding of the personality that you bring, you know, to the world, I don't, I don't think those questions are going to be meaningful to you at all. So Drew, I, we, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, um, but when we met Mario, Mario was a guest on our, on our podcast, um, you're, you're, my, you're, my second you're, favorite podcast. Okay, too late, too late. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Um, since meeting Mario, MJ, and kind of getting familiar with the awareness to action approach, What's like a surprising realization or how has your language shifted, your understanding shifted about the Enneagram? We could probably spend a lot of time talking about that and yeah. how their approach has uh, really shifted the way I think about the Enneagram. So uh, I think, I, so I'll just say a few things. Um, one is 
to not worry about you know the <laughs> what in theology is kind of called the apostolic succession you know of things mm. I, uh, and I think there's a lot of time and energy wasted on trying to link one's training and understanding of the Enneagram to some sort of original source that no one understands or knows about, right? And so I think that that, that was very freeing. <laughs> Someone who cares about the Enneagram deeply and wanted to uh, treat the tool with care and wisdom and also, you know, wanting to have some credibility in the space, right? And I think, you know, to hear <laughs> Mario and MJ, it's not that it doesn't matter, but the way in which we talk about it too often doesn't matter, right? And mm. it matters far more that you're using it correctly and and effectively. And so, and I think that is what I really appreciate about the whole approach, you know, the whole ATA approach is that it's really more... It, as a three, the pragmatism of, of it is really great. You know, that, mm. um, there's, uh, it's not simplistic in, in, you know, your approach is not simplistic, but it is simple in that stick with what works and what matters to the people that you're interacting with. And I think that's also uh, been really profound because I think it, we you know, the, the layers of the Enneagram are such that, I mean, there's, there's so many garbage hot takes and approaches out there and it just gets really convoluted quickly. Hmm. In terms of the languaging, I think the the more action-oriented approach to talking about the types is really helpful. I think, you know, that striving to feel, you know, and insert your own types, you know, whether it's outstanding in my case, uh, is really helpful because it, it really focuses more, it gets out of this kind of weird ego essence uh, esoteric conversation and more, no, this is what the type does. It, it strives to feel this, right? And once you understand that, then you can start to work in some really helpful ways. Mm. Um, and then, you know, of course, I think the approach to the instincts in, instinctual bias is, is really uh, helpful and profound as well, mm. which I'm sure we'll talk about. But what's, what's one thing that you had a hard time accepting or maybe still don't accept about the ATA model? Oh, let's see. T tighten your helmet, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Things that I don't... Oh, okay. So I, I think, uh, yeah, this is one I'm still wrestling with. You know, I, I, most other schools of thought in the Enneagram, you can kind of choose your own adventure in terms of your stacking <laughs> and the patterns of expression are fixed in your system. And... Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't disagree with that. I just, I don't quite understand how it has to be, how it's fixed that way necessarily, right? It, it, I don't disagree with it necessarily, but the other schools of thought let you kind of choose your stacking, you know, of, mm. well, in, in the other kind of lingo, the sexual or one-to-one, -one, right? Uh, social and self-preservation. You can kind of choose the order, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas that's not the case in the ATA patterns of expression. I'll just comment on that. I mean, I don't yeah, want to go. Sure you well, I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, Mario, you're not allowed to respond to this. <laughs> and his head explodes. <laughs> In the words of Samuel Johnson, I, I, I refute you thus. No, um, no. Uh, he, he needs to get it off his chest. Come on, come on, come on. No, hang, hang in there. I was recently, I, I was, look, while you were, talking, Drew, um, I was looking for the uh, title of a book, 
that um, I read a review of in the uh, Wall Street Journal recently. It's a book on how we know ourselves, right? This idea, you know, is how hard it is to know ourselves. And the, um, the ultimate conclusion is the only way we can know ourselves is through our actions, right? So we can yeah. say, I am this, I am this. I can say, for example, that I'm a great cook, okay? But... If you analyze my behaviors related to cooking, you will see that I am deluding myself, right? That, uh, you know, I am not a great cook. I can say all sorts of things and really, really believe them, okay? But it's our actions and it's the data that demonstrates you are this, okay? And so to get back to your earlier point that, you know, we talk about what somebody does. Yeah rather than how they take themselves to be. And I remember having a, well, remember, it was only a few weeks ago, but I was having a conversation with a, a woman, Enneagrammer, who was ta- saying to me, uh, well, when you describe the transmitting three, that is me, but it's not who I am. That's what yeah. I do, but it's not sure, who I am. Sure. Mm. Well, okay, right? And so... When we look at this, we look at what people do, and that's why we call it a pattern of expression, right? Yeah. Because it's all about how these things express themselves. Now, again, everybody thinks we're wrong, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, everybody disagrees. <laughs> not everybody, they do. not everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but most people. Well, yeah, you know, but yeah, the, the smart people don't. But the, uh, <laughs> you know, no, I'm, uh, I'm just seeing who's listening out there. Yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, a lot well, less no in the comments, right? <laughs> you know, I think, and, and I think we agree here, the people who have learned it differently tend to disagree with us because they get this right. yeah. dissonance. And, uh, but people who are not familiar with the Enneagram who get to hear about it, they see it very quickly. So it's, and yeah. they agree with it. So I think it's more of a, a friction the prior beliefs yeah and i think no matter what you're any any sort of kind of training or apprenticeship model you know you have you have this uh emotional tie right to your school or your teacher and when you encounter views that are that differ that it can be disorienting and so it requires kind of some deconstruction right in order to which takes a little bit more time, for sure. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. right. And and that's one of the things we always say is that it's easier to work with people who are not familiar with the Enneagram because sure. we don't have to unteach them. Things, right. right. Or deconstruct, yeah. like you're saying. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, the, the mechanism, the why, right, is, yeah. you know, something that people, you know, wrestle. But, but why is it only one way versus, you know, multiple ways? And, you know, my only reaction to that is I, I have no idea. Right. Uh, it's yeah. just what I see, you know, and I also will point to, well, we don't know why gravity works either. Sure. But we see it everywhere. Right. And we don't know what dark matter is or dark energy are, but the math indicate that they're there. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why um, it comes out the way it does. Yeah. All, all I'm hearing is the pattern of expression is as sure as gravity, is what Mario is saying. <laughs> yeah, pretty um, much. You, yeah. you, you, you inferred the right implication there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. When he says, I don't know, some people take it as, well, he's not knowledgeable, you know? 
And uh, right, right. And I think that it takes a lot of study and effort to try to find a, an answer for it and say, you know what, I don't know. And that's where we're coming from. And mm -hmm. people, at least in the Enneagram community, have a hard time saying, I don't know. And I think that it's mm, yeah. um, something that it's very important to say, I don't know, when you really don't know. Sure, because people come to a school expecting answers, yep. right? <laughs> and paying for answers. And mm -hmm. when they, yeah. And so that's why most people who lead schools come up with them, right? <laughs> One right. way or the other. So Drew, your strategy is striving to feel outstanding. How do you see that in yourself uh, in adaptive and maladaptive ways? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I can start with the maladaptive first, <laughs> if that's all right, because there's plenty of that and uh, learn plenty of those lessons the hard way. I think maladaptively, I think a three can have delusions of grandeur that she or he can do anything, right? It's, it's, and it's in throughout my life, it's been really easy for me to imagine myself doing all sorts of different things successfully, right? And with some, you know, voices of reason, you know, in a three's life, which is really important. I'll get to that. And, uh, you know, they, you can kind of come back down to earth and realize, okay, you can't do everything right. Nor should you, uh, because maladaptively threes can often overcommit to things that they really aren't interested in or have no business doing, but because they saw themselves being successful or imagining themselves being successful when completing that thing, that was a great feeling. It's a nice dopamine hit. And so they say yes. And then once they get into the commitment that they've committed themselves to, they, they start to think, what the heck have I done? You know, why, why have I said yes to this thing? Yeah. Um, and so I just got to get through it yeah. as quickly as possible. Th that's yeah. what we call um, one of the derailers of type three, the I'll do it syndrome. It's just... Yes. Addictive to mm. say yes to things, to doing things because of that dopamine yeah. that you mentioned. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So overcommitment's a big deal. Spreading oneself too thin is a big deal, which is why I think you know the accelerator of purpose in in the ATA system is so critical for a three because it actually orients and aligns all the three's skills and abilities to towards a purpose and not just anything and everything. And, you know, maladaptively too, and I alluded to this before, I, I think the three's penchant for getting things done, for doing things, for being successful can be a cover for not dealing with the three's own internal stuff, right? I think when um, difficult emotions, failures in the past... Uh, difficult relationships, you know, kind of rear their ugly head, it's easier for a three to just go kill it somewhere else, right? Than to face those things. And so that's why, you know, threes who are unhealthy, again, are so good externally and their internal world can just be a, an absolute dumpster fire, right? Um, I, I just want to know. point out, first of all, I completely agree with what you said, Drew. And I'll also comment that all the types escape through their strategy, right? Yeah. So, you know, they, we all run 
from things we don't want to face in very specific ways. Okay, so I think when we talked about the uh, the eight in that episode, we talked about how the eight's dysfunction tends to be more outward in its expression, right? So yeah. you know, I I avoid my pain by inflicting pain on others. Okay, you know, some of the types are more internal in the way they express it. Threes lose it through manufactured identity and busyness. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And then, you know, so for me, you know, a, a lot of my kind of adult journey has been learning to sit with kind of my emotional world and not just go, you know, build a fence, as you said, Mario, right? Uh, because, you know, I need to expand my vocabulary of what is going on internally with me as opposed to just, you know, what it was before was I'm hungry or angry (laughs) or happy. (laughs) It was was very simple. Um, And, uh, you know, I've had to really expand my, my notion and my nuance and complexity of my internal world. Right. And not just realize that you're really hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Or maybe I'm not hungry, you know, as a preserving three, maybe I'm not hungry. (laughs) So now adaptively, I think, like you said, this strategy of striving to feel outstanding, it's a strategy and it's a strategy for good. It's a strategy for bad. It's a strategy for ugly, right? And when it comes to the adaptive tendencies of the three, I think, you know, and we did talk about this somewhat earlier, that all of that productivity, efficiency, success, drive, commitment to excelling, when harnessed for a common good or for those who maybe are overlooked or towards uh, a company or, or organizational's uh, culture or key performance indicators, it, you know, any of those things, it, it can be fuel, right? It can be really good, uh, sustainable fuel for whatever that endeavor is, right? And, and so I think adaptively, I've found myself able to use these strategies, the strategy of striving to feel outstanding, not just for me, but for us, right? And uh, and that's been really important because I think, and that's so critical, I think, because a lot of threes, when they encounter the Enneagram, they end up thinking, I'm such a selfish jerk, right? And so I have mm. to kill the strategy in order to not be a selfish jerk anymore, right? Hmm. Which is horrible, because then you're 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 not only are you killing you know some of the maladaptive tendencies in your life, but you're also killing all the good stuff too, right? And so the goal is not to stop being a three, but to be a more healthy, adaptive version of a three. Yeah, it you know it it, it struck me uh, when you kind of commented on this idea of killing this you know selfish individual how. The three is often viewed as not being a particularly compassionate and sensitive type. Sure. And yet, they're one of the types that are shown the least amount of compassion in the mm-hmm. Enneagram world, right? Uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. there's this view that, well, you know, they got it all together and, you know, and we kind of hate them for it. And so we label them as superficial and shallow and, you know, whatever else, which is is an expression of that very thing that people accuse threes of doing and being. Yeah, and I also think there's this kind of broad stroke cultural assessment, especially in the West, that we're a three kind of culture and therefore threes are exalted, which to some degree is true in certain instances. And therefore they say, well, you've just got a a pass in your life over and over again as a three, Mm -hmm. therefore 
um, it's time for you to, you know, uh, you know, yeah, some uh, retributive justice. Yeah, feel it is, a little is, bit. Is a yeah. yeah. Um, and again, there, it's not that that's entirely untrue, but at the same time, it, it's a broad stroke that yeah. isn't always helpful to the three, right? Because it because yeah. what happens then is an existential crisis. If you take this away from me, this strategy, I don't know how to be, right? right. Not to mention how to do. I don't know how to be, right? And that's right. and that's really hard for a three. Yeah. Drew, the connecting points for three is uh, striving to feel secure and striving to feel peaceful. Um, where do you see those show up in your life and how do you, how would you say you use those adaptively and maladaptively? Yeah, I think that striving to feel peaceful is a, is a tricky one because I think I find myself as a, you know, a more assertive kind of personality in general, um, you know, forcing my way into my world, but trying to do so in ways that everyone likes it and is impressed by it, right? And so I'm always trying to make calm and peace to kind of smooth over the rough edges that I've created in my world, right? I assert myself and then I want to kind of, you know, polish it all up, right? And I think and that, that's, that's a tough thing to reconcile, yeah. And then I also think too, this is this is where I find some interesting intersections with my um, instinctual bias as a preserving three, right? That, uh, you know, I think a lot of, I'm always trying to, it feels like in my life, I'm trying to push the gas and the brake at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. because, uh, because I don't want to be too forceful, yet I can't help it at the same time, striving to feel outstanding. But the same, so I'm always trying, mm-hmm. I'm, restraining myself and pushing myself at the same time. And, and so I think that comes out in that support strategy, you know, that connecting point of the type nine, where I find myself kind of holding myself back more than people realize, right? And yeah, I, there's this internal regulator that I think as a preserver is, is trying to harness some of my kind of threeness, so to speak, because I don't want to be as disruptive you know, I want to keep things more peaceful than, um, and I don't know how to reconcile it well. And so it feels kind of jerky, right? Most of the time, like I'm lunging forward. Student driver. The brakes, right. Yeah. Student driver. Right? <laughs> <In> this, <laughs> Which um, you're familiar with right now. <laughs> I am. Yes, I have one. And yeah, it's pray for me. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think uh, adaptively when that's going well, it, it does allow me uh, to to be uh, at peace with and just okay with what is, I think, in some, sometimes that I don't always have, you know, that striving to be outstanding can be kind of dialed back just a little bit in a healthy uh, and more authentic way, especially around those um, I care about the most and care about me the most, right? That's when I don't have to, I feel like I can take the mask off a little bit and kind of rest in that support strategy. Uh, anything you all want to say about that before I move on to the six? Or no, I, I just I wanted to um, highlight how your description of type nine is nothing like a nothing close to what a nine would say about being a nine. I think yes, you're absolutely how right. A three embodies the type nine strategy of striving to feel peaceful. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's and and that's how we see it. That it's a profile. That it's threes. Mm-hmm use this strategy at point nine in a very particular way, not like a nine would. Yeah. Yeah. 
the three doesn't become a nine temporarily. They just start using the strategy of striving to feel peaceful in a particular way, but like Maria Jose said, a very three-ish way uh, right. rather than a nine, the way that a nine would. Um, I think, too, what the, the comment that you made about having one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas is similar with all of the subtypes where the instinctual bias and the strategy are in some conflict yeah. with each other. Right? Yeah. Because I experienced the same thing as a navigating eight, right, that the eight is very you know, aggressive and outward and pushing and the navigating causes me to hold back on occasion. And people who don't know it, people who don't see it, don't see it, right? They'll, they'll focus on one part of it. Okay. So with you, my guess is they see this three stuff, but they don't necessarily see that foot on the brake that you're so aware of. Right. And there are a lot of even, you know, charged or tensed in, intense environments that I have walked away from thinking I could have eviscerated you, (laughs) you know, know, because, but I didn't because as a three that would have violated a lot of my strategies kind of core tenets. Right. How, how many? How often does that happen during our podcast on families? <laughs> <laughs> Depends curious. on the guest. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> not very often. But it. But you know, some of it is. You know, I'm a quick thinker. Uh, I'm. A, I'm a smart guy. I'm not too easily rattled, and and so I can. I, I I'm kind of restraining my words a lot in some of those environments, and some of that is to keep the image right, and because I I. I I don't want to be known as, you know, the jerk in the room. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of that kind of uh, better to keep the peace than, you know, just, uh, you know, slay them <laughs> before me. Slay. There's some of that. Yeah. Um, and this, my friends, is the, the, the primary distinction between a three and an eight. That, there you go. Uh, Somebody that, what's that, the that difference? describing <laughs> right here. Yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's move to striving to feel secure. S- secure. Yeah. Six. You know, this is this is another interesting one because I think as a preserving three, a lot of my outstandingness <laughs> is measured by the things that I can preserve in my life or kind of rack up, mount up store up that sort of thing and and so for me that get i interpret that often as secure security right i'm secure because of all these things i've been able to achieve and and therefore preserve right all the you know things i'm able to do which is why you know i have a full-time job and side hustles and you know i think that is a form of security for me as opposed to uh you know not taking the time and energy to do those things. And also, I, I think this does come out, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, I'm remembering, uh, you know, for the three, that neglected strategy, the type six is kind of a fear of being average, right? And so by being perceived as average or, you know, kind of assessing oneself as average is a form of insecurity. Because if I am average, I'm expendable, right? I'm discardable. Mm. And so, therefore, I cannot be average, I have to be outstanding, and that mm-hmm. and my pursuit of being outstanding is a form of me trying to be secure because then I have value and I have worth. Yeah, when we talk about that uh, neglected strategy, you're right that there is this fear in the three when they look at this striving to feel secure, and for them they interpret it as average, right? And with the six, it's I don't want to stand out too much, 
because right, if I right. stand out too much, I'm at risk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and we always use the example of, of a herd of zebras, right? So zebras have evolved their stripes and a tendency to herd because it makes it harder for predators to pick one out of the group and attack it. So there's this safety in blending in. And sixes can very much manifest that in certain ways. If I, you know, if I draw too much attention to myself, I'll be at risk. But for the three who's striving to feel outstanding, well, you know, just being another zebra in the herd that's blending in kind of goes against this fundamental goal yeah. that I have. But I think it, when uh, I'm able to connect to the six adaptively, I think I can find rest and solace and security yeah. among my people, you know, without having to continue to strive, 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 right? Because it can be exhausting. Yeah. There's also the contradiction created uh, when we neglect or when threes neglect um, the type six strategy that it's achievement versus anxiety. So this anxiety that people don't always see, how is that in your experience? How do you deal with anxiety? And um, Oh, yeah. I think this is what most people don't understand about threes is that because uh, externally they look all totally put together, you know they they've they've got things figured out. They present themselves as confident and assured. You know they tend to follow through on their commitments really well, even though they've overcommitted themselves. Or a lot of times we wing it, right? And so underneath a, a lot of that energy for that striving to feel outstanding is fueled by anxiety that we are anxious. Either can I do this? Am I good enough to do this? thing that I've committed myself to, or I think even deeper, am I valuable or worthy, right? <laughs> and am I going to prove that I'm valuable or worthy by doing this thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, wh- whereas most people just see threes as, yeah, they're immensely valuable because of all the things they can get done, how successful they are. Think of the value they've created, right? Whereas three doesn't necessarily see the value we've created, it's just the value that we have manufactured in order to feel like we uh, mean something, right, and matter. And and so that that there's a lot of anxiety underneath the surface of that that fuels that achievement. And, and so I remember just a very kind of distinct memory in my childhood. I moved in third grade to a different state, different school system. But I moved from a high-achieving suburban elementary school to a rural school that was very fine, but it was behind academically where I was, right? And so I showed up, and I think my first day, they were doing uh, Around the World with Multiplication. It's a game where you kind of, if you win, (laughs) you advance, right? And you keep moving around the, the classroom until someone beats you to the answer and then you have to sit down at your seat. And I destroyed it. I I remember because I was I was so nervous to be in this new environment. I didn't know anyone, new school, 9 years old. It's a stressful thing, but here and then I I do this around the world and I I go around the entire class and then the teacher just asked me to sit down because there was no end in sight. I was just going to keep winning. <laughs> and I felt so all the other kids really loved you, didn't they? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's it. But to me, I didn't even think of that, right? It was totally like Whew. Because I achieved, you know, I felt that temporary release of that anxiety that I was feeling. Like, I'm going to be okay here, right? And I didn't even think about the fact, okay, who's the new kid who thinks he's so smart, right? <laughs> right, right. 
um, came from the city, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And I didn't even think of that. It, and so it, it was, if I can achieve, I'll be okay. Right. Hmm. That, that's an anxiety prop, fueled proposition for a, lo- a lot of three kind of activity in the world. I, th- I think this is a real important takeaway for listeners to, you know, this idea of anxiety with threes, because again, it's something that's just not recognized and it's rarely talked about is that they are fueled to a great deal by this um, fear of failure, uh, this fear of, of, and, and, you know, more so than fear of failure, it's um, the the threat of regret. I think. Sure. I, I could have done this. I I could have written three books. I only wrote two. You know, sort of thing. I could have uh-huh. done this. I could have done that. Um, that really drives them. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Could we quickly define uh, why we use neglected and support strategy? I don't think we've actually touched on that in. The sure. podcast. Why are we using that language? I'll give the short version. Um, you know, so originally the ideas, as I learned, it was integration and disintegration and or stress and security. And that didn't seem to work for me for a variety of reasons. I wanted to call them something else with the understanding that we actually go to both connecting points in both adaptive and maladaptive ways, as we've described, right? We all do them in ways that are you know, useful in ways that are non-useful. But as a coach, my focus is on what gets us into trouble, not necessarily, you know, uh, you know what's helpful for us, right? I always tell people I'm not a cheerleader, I'm a coach. So uh, we started looking at, okay, well, how do we get in trouble at these connecting points? And it's usually because I'm neglecting one of them. Drew as a three neglects uh, striving to feel secure at times when he should feel secure. Maria Jose as a one neglects striving to feel excited. So at times when it's perfectly appropriate to be excited, she doesn't allow herself to. Uh, I as an eight should connect to people and at certain times I don't when I should. So we neglect it, it gets us into trouble, something to pay attention to. Now going the other direction, we tend to get into trouble when we use that strategy to maladaptively reinforce our preferred strategy or to support it in some way. So again, you know, uh, Drew as a, as a three uses nine as a support strategy. I'm going to make it look like I've got it all together. I'm going to make it look like I'm perfectly fine when in fact I'm not. Okay. Yeah. Um, Maria Jose, you know, is, uh, uses striving to feel unique to reinforce this sense of being perfect or support this sense of being perfect, but again, in a maladaptive way. And I do the same thing with point five. Um, I become detached, insensitive, um, you know, and uh, reflective in a maladaptive way. Could be in adaptive ways as well. Could be, but again, we use both. But when I'm doing it in an adaptive way, as a coach, that's not something I worry about. Right. So, mm, right. You, you know, you're, you're doing it adaptively. Great. Keep doing it. Right. Yeah. But what we need to talk about is when you're doing a maladaptive. So that's sure. why we put those labels on it. Is it perfect? No. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it can give the impression much like integration and disintegration that it's only one thing, but right. it's, yeah. you know, it's what we're working with at this sure. point. So Drew, we have for each type, we have a blind spot identified and it's not like 
people are not aware that they do it, but they're not aware of all the implications and how they're perceived and the impact on other people. For type three is um, inauthenticity. How would you describe that in your life? What's your experience with it? What did you? What have you noticed in yourself regarding that? Yeah. Well, that, yeah, there's a lot I could say about that. I think probably the most important thing I, I could say about the inauthenticity blind spot of the type three is that it's it's a blind spot for most threes, not because they're just completely self, self-absorbed jerks, right? It's a blind spot for most threes because they don't fully understand what being authentic means for them. And so there, there's this perpetual kind of pursuit of striving to feel outstanding as a means to try to figure out, okay, who am I really, right? Because I don't, I don't quite know. <laughs> and if I stop doing this uh, striving to feel outstanding, there may be nothing there, right? And that's a terrifying prospect for a type three. And so, you know, again, of course, there are, we can find plenty of stories of threes who have put themselves on this platform or stage and identified with a certain persona and it's completely fake and fabricated, right? And it's, that's fairly easy to see. I think what most people don't realize about threes is that this drive, again, often this anxiety-fueled drive to achieve is often a pursuit of this question, who am I, right? What, who is the real me, right? And, and so that authenticity is a really hard question for threes to answer. It's really difficult to be able to talk about ourselves without the th- void of the things that we do, right? Because those things, we closely identify with those things in good and bad ways. And, and so I, I think the good, the good of it is that we can really wing it and kind of, you know, that chameleon or shapeshifter qualities of the three, we can enter a room and very quickly see, this is who I need to be in order to be successful in this space, right? So that serves us well. But over a lifetime, the cumulative effect of that is when we're always orienting who we, how we present ourselves to our external kind of factors, we lose sight of what does it mean to show up authentically me? That's really hard for us to figure out. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, what I was reflecting on is how true that is for everybody. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, you know, we always talk about inauthenticity as an issue around three and it is it's it's a heightened issue sure thing and i think the rest of us are fooling ourselves when we think we know who we authentically are right yeah um and i think it's kind of almost one of these things where the threes almost worry about it more or feel more anxiety about those questions and other so. people should actually give more thought to it of who am I really and what does it mean to be authentic, right? Uh, because again, you, you know, there, there's a great saying from uh, Zen Buddhism that the first mis- mistake is to think that there is no self and the second mistake is to think that there is, right? So, <laughs> you, you know, when we start talking about authentic self and most cognitive psychologists would tell you that that's just an artifact of the brain to help 
create yeah. security, this sense of a going on being, this sense of an authentic self, when the reality is, is that we're all just this bundle of sense perceptions and responses to those sense perceptions. And there's much less consistency in any one of us uh, than we believe there to be. Okay. So uh, I just bring this up for anybody working with the Enneagram to be more sensitive to threes as they wrestle with this question mm -hmm. and not be so smug in thinking, ah, those superficial threes, they don't, you know, they're not authentic. Good news for you, pal. You're not authentic either. Mm. No, that's a Thanks good word. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Drew, our final question, um, and you've probably touched on a few of these things, but well, we, a lot of what we talked about kind of falls under this question, but I'm curious if you'd add any other things to things that you feel that most people miss about your type or misunderstand. What's, what's the one thing people need to walk away with, if nothing else? I think it's uh, important for people to know that they, they still need to check in on their, their threes in their lives. I think um, I've had to learn how to ask for that of people that I trust and close to me. Like, hey, I, I think because they always the assumption is you're you're fine, you're okay because you've got your stuff together, right? And you seem to be doing well in all these areas of life. And and what what that can mask is, yeah, there is a lot of turmoil, you know, beneath the surface that eventually leads to all these external results. And, um, and so they do need to be checked in on, even if they don't have good answers or responses to, you know, questions regarding, Hey, how are you doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and cause a lot of times I don't have a good answer for that question. Uh, but it's still important that I get asked the question. I think that's, that's important because I need to have relational, uh, encounters that aren't purely transactional. Right. I, we all do. And I think threes need to have that, but uh, they can, you know, in, in in maladaptive states can just get into those transactional states and have plenty of human interaction that's really positive and exciting and charged, And but it is kind of that transactional nature, right? And, um, and it doesn't always have to be, you know, burying your soul. It just has to be connecting, you know, on levels other than that, right? <laughs> uh, other than those things, I think that's important. So, if threes do need that, even though they may present themselves as they don't. Right? Well, you thanks so much. Um, it was a lovely conversation. Uh, there's a lot of great insight here. So, uh, thanks for joining us on this episode. Yeah. Well, yeah, hey, good, good stuff, Drew. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, the phrase is long time listener, first time caller. So, I'm honored <laughs> to be on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, if people want to engage in your work, where should they go? You can find the book anywhere you buy books online uh, and typetrail.co is kind of my web home for the work that I do. Yeah, typetrail.co. And your Instagram Great. is typetrail as well, correct? Yeah, typetrail, at typetrail Enneagram. All right, thanks, Drew. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.